Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. With God's help, we're going to consider verses 12 to 26. And as you turn there, let me me begin with a confession. I'm getting cranky in my old age. See, Danny, Dr. Aiken, is getting more and more gracious as he ages. Mark is getting more and more energetic. I mean, he's announcing conferences that don't even have websites and stuff, right? He just, you know, let's just get at it, you know, we'll... Meet you there, you know. We don't know where yet, but just, you know, it's like Abraham. Go to a land, I will show you. You know. (laughs) Alistair is getting more and more witty. Don't you just love the Scottish humor? I mean, you know, there's always a stinger in the tail, isn't there, you know? Lig is getting more and more slim. And dapper, right? The only reason I'm not wearing a suit this year is because we invited the Presbyterian. (laughs) He's rocking the tie and the pocket square. I just can't mess with that, you know, because for me, I either got to buy the socks or the pocket square. I mean, that's just way above my pay grade. So, and Jonathan, as he ages, though as a young man, just gets more and more scholarly, more and more erudite. Me? I'm getting gray, fat, and cranky. (laughs) And there are a few things that bring out my inner crank. One of them is Christians with no sense of humor. (laughs) See, they're the ones who are not laughing right now. You, you, (laughs) you drive me crazy. You know, I, you know, if you don't believe me, I mean, you know, just put something funny on your Twitter page or your Facebook page and, and watch. In a matter of moments, someone writing from their bunker in Utah will write to you and say, my, my brother, do you think that was edifying? No, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus laugh. Is he human, ain't he? You know, just, you, you drive me crazy. You make me, you make me cranky. Here's another one. Here's another one. Grown men in skinny jeans. Wait, 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 wait for it, wait for it, yeah. That, 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 that should be enough, but grown men in skinny jeans in feminine colors. Brother, if the tag says the, 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 the color of the pants is plum, that's not for you. <laughs> or... Or ocean sage. What is that? <laughs> you, you, you know what skinny jeans are, don't you? You know, you know who invented skinny jeans? Women. <laughs> and you know why they invented skinny jeans? Because some man invented high heel shoes. It's, it's their payback. It's their payback. Don't, don't wear them, brother. You drive me crazy. There's another thing that brings out my inner, inner crank. These young men that... They wear their blue jeans down here with, with the belt tied around their thigh, hopping down the street holding the pants. 
And I, I never noticed this till we moved back to the United States. My, my 16-year-old daughter pointed this out to us as we were driving down the street the other day. I, I, I never noticed this. Have you ever noticed that, that the pants are down here, you see the plaid boxers, and the T-shirt is tucked in? <laughs> like it would just be too sloppy to have your T-shirt tucked out. But, <laughs> but to drive... Drives me crazy. You know, I, I want to find a guy who started that trend and the guy who first copied him. Because actually there's the originator and there's the next guy who made it a trend, right? I want to find them both and, and, and I want to thank them real hard <laughs> T- till it hurts. <laughs> there's one more thing that brings out my crank that's relevant to the conference. <laughs> People who say church membership is not in the Bible. Now, there were some here. I don't know where you're sitting right now, so I'm just going to look over here. If you happen to be sitting over there, I'm I'm not looking at you, but I am talking to you. If that's what you think, you're not only driving me crazy, but I I think you ought to stop it. it. It is an indication that you're not reading your Bible well. And, and, or that you're, you're, you're spiritually blind. You're, you're like that man who goes into the kitchen, to the refrigerator. His wife, his dutiful, loving wife, has gone to the grocery store that Saturday morning and, and come back and loaded the, gross, the refrigerator with, with food of all sorts and all kinds of sizes and containers. And he, and he goes and he opens the refrigerator and he stands there in the refrigerator for some interminable period of time just looking. You know, the ice is melting and, you know, the... The light in the refrigerator is beginning to blink and to go out. And, and after about 39 hours, he stands up and he says, Honey, we got anything to eat? You See, the wives know that guy, right? What he means is the bread hasn't stood up on its own, walked over and hugged the lettuce and, and, and grabbed the meat and jumped into his mouth. There, there, there's food all in the refrigerator. And some people read their Bibles like that. Bible's wide open. They're staring right into it, and they don't see the obvious, like church membership. The Bible's full of it, but some people willfully or ignorantly resist seeing it. And, and sometimes the defenders of church membership, we, we say that too, don't we? We say, well, you know, I, I know the words church membership aren't in the Bible, but the idea is there. I want you to stop saying that too. Maybe you're being a little overly, you've been like the overly tender parent with the, who can't bear a word of correction to the erring child. The phrase is there, I want to contend, in the Bible, if we have the right idea of church in mind. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
The whole body were an ear, where it would be the sense of smell. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired, your infallible, your inerrant, your holy, your efficacious, your wonderful word. We thank you for the freedom you have given us to enjoy it. And let us enjoy it indeed. Let us live not by bread alone, but let us live as you taught us, Master, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And and let our hearing this morning be alert and active and let the preaching be clear and helpful. Speak to us, O Lord. Your servants listen. In Jesus' name. Amen. So three things I want us to see from our text this morning, if you're taking notes. The first is we want to just observe here the doctrine of church membership as it's laid out in 1 Corinthians 12. What does 1 Corinthians 12 teach us about church membership? The second thing we want to see are the dangers facing or toward church membership. There are some things that we're taught in this text that represent a kind of threat to the reality of church membership as it's taught here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll see two of those. And then number three, we want to consider the duties, or if you like, the delights of church membership laid out in 1 Corinthians 12. Those things that uh, membership entail or, or those things that are, are placed upon us as members in our local churches. And we'll see four of those. So first of all, the, the doctrine of church membership. I said I want you to stop saying church membership isn't in the Bible. And I know what some people mean when they say that. They say the, the phrase itself is not there, or, or, or some people want to argue as if the, the concept is not there. And I want to argue not reading your Bibles well, if that's what you think. Look again at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Did you see it? Or are we standing in front of the refrigerator waiting for the sandwich to form for us? Look there again. There in one verse is church membership. Not not only the idea, but very nearly the exact phrase. And to see that, you have to recognize that when Paul says body, he means church. Body is just simply an analogy, a simile that he's using for church. And, And you see the word there, member? That comes from the Greek word, which means member. (laughs) So it's right there. Church membership. 
He says the same thing over in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, where he says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I, 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 I fight for this idea. I love this idea. And people make me cranky on this idea because I find it so beautiful. When Paul is talking here about church membership, he is not, he is not, he is not thinking about the country club, however strict their membership requirements are, or the Rotary Club, however, however eloquent you have to be or service-oriented you have to be there. He's not thinking about Toastmasters and the speeches that go on there. He's not thinking about the civic or the trade guilds of his day. He is thinking about Jesus. This is a deeply Christological idea. He has in mind the body of Christ. He thinks of the human body as a pattern for Christ's body. And he thinks of the individual Christian as a member or part or appendage or organ in Christ's body so that every time we speak of church membership we're thinking of the body of christ and every time we say body of christ we ought to have in mind church membership and whenever we think of church membership we're thinking not so much again of voluntary associations contracted and entered into by otherwise autonomous individuals choosing from a buffet of local churches no the bible presents church membership as a definite act and design of the triune god did you see that when we read through it verse 12 it's the body of christ and each of us are in it and that begs the question, well, how, how, how did we get joined to Christ's body? Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So much there in that sentence. How the spirit of God takes people who were no people and makes them a people. Uh, He takes people from various classes and he he levels them in the cross and joins them to Christ. How we are immersed in this spiritual reality with, with Christ through the Spirit. So it's not only the body of Christ, but it's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And skip down to verse 18. Are we just free floating around in this sort of baptism? Are we, are we sort of kicking in the waters and, and floating in the pool. I guess you couldn't do that as a Presbyterian, but, you know, we Baptists could, you know. Link is so gracious. He's such a good man. Look down at verse 18. Then we're told, but as it is, God now, the Father, arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The church is the body of Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit, according to the blueprint of the Father. The sovereign God of the universe thoughtfully placed each person and thoughtfully, sovereignly gave each person a role and a gift precisely as he wanted in the body of his Son. This means church membership is a divine work of art. 
I mean, I mean, after we're told that, that God scooped Adam up out of the clay and breathed into his nostrils off the top of my head, I can't think of another place where we're told God put his hands on us. And to be a member of the church is to have been touched by God. Rescued, first of all, from the coming flames of his judgment. And then sat like a baby in a crib. In his very home and kingdom. Stitched, tailored, knitted together with Christ his son. If you're a Christian, beloved, if you're a member of a church, you've been touched by God. Some of us are from a region of the country and from a generation that Loves that little hymn. I think George Beverly Shea used to sing it a lot. He touched me. He touched me. You can sing that if you are Christ and you're in the body. He touched you. Now, someone will come along and say, but this is the spiritual church or the universal church, not the, not the local church, the beating, to which I ask. Does Paul write this letter to the spiritual church? <laughs> or, or does he mean for a real body of people in a real local place to have this letter really affect how they live out their Christian life? I mean, what, what we have here is the apostle thinking about that great doctrine of our union with Christ. As it's worked out in our union with each other in the local church, which is what we call church membership. And everything we have and everything we are come to us as a consequence of our union with Jesus. That includes church membership, beloved. Everything we have and everything we are come to us as a consequence of our being united to Christ by faith. John Calvin said that both justification and regeneration are the results of the believer's union with Christ through faith. John Murray called union with Christ, quote, the central truth of the, of the, of the whole doctrine of salvation. And what a marvelous truth it is that sinners once cast off from God to not only be brought back to God, but be spiritually joined together with God. And, and our visible local church membership is grounded in our invisible universal union with Christ. Or to put it another way, where does our union with Christ express itself in the New Testament? It expresses itself in our membership in our local churches where we express our union with the body in tangible ways. Another theologian said this, this being in Christ is the prime enigma of the Pauline teaching that once grasped gives the clue to the whole. And indeed it does. This 
especially regarding church membership. When we see that, that church membership is one visible expression of our union with Christ, then, then we, we get the clue to the whole problem. And so the irony of ironies is, is those folks who argue most vehemently against local church membership oftentimes cite their participation in the universal spiritual church where the New Testament is telling us that actually your participation in the spiritual body of Christ is what gives manifestation to your local church membership. Those things are not enemies. They're symbiotically joined. One's the deep taproot, the other the blooming flower of this ineffable reality that we are not alone, that we live in Christ and He lives in us. So stop saying church membership is not in the Bible. It's in places like 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Romans 12, 5, and in the over 200 times that Paul alone refers to our being in Christ. It's everywhere. Which brings us then to the two dangers that face this idea of membership. We wouldn't be having this conversation if there weren't certain notions abounding in the church world that, that undermine it. The idea has been under constant assault for the last 20 years or so. And in fact, there were threats all the way back to Paul's day. And Paul identifies two ways of thinking here that, that poison this flower. Notice the first threat is the feeling of inferiority. See it there in verses 15 and 16. If the foot should say... Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. You see there, again it says, And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Notice how these persons reason. They say, Because I am not a hand or an eye. In other words, because I'm not the... I'm not the person with the prominent spiritual gift. I'm not the person playing what most people think is the, the vital upfront role. Because I'm not the, I'm not the man in the church, then, then I don't really belong. These people have what Dr. King called the drum major instinct, that, that desire to want to be first in all things. And they go away sulking. Because I don't get to preach as much as I'd like because I don't get to sing solos as much as I'd like because I'm not sort of the person who's obviously applauded and gifted in the church, then I don't really have a part in the body. Now, don't let their sulking fool you. See, these folks are full of apparent self-loathing because they don't get to display their self-love. And at the bottom of this feeling of insignificance is really a perverse kind of pride, isn't it? They complain about the man while secretly wanting to be the man. It's pride. And, and, and beloved, pride, this kind of pride is a significantly different problem than weakness. There are persons who are weak and who don't understand and, and who just need to be nurtured and cared for and loved. There are, as we saw yesterday, a number of people who have suffered hurts at the hands of abusive leadership or at the hands of unloving fellow Christians in the church. And, and those things need to be addressed as, as a kind of weakness, as a pain. They need to be cared for. But that's not what's being addressed here. What's being addressed here is pride. 
that manifests itself as insignificance and self-loathing. Notice the second thing here. Prize at the root of the second problem, too, is the feeling of independence. The feeling of independence. See it in verse 21? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You see how they're reasoning. They they think they're too good for the less prominent parts. They they, they think they're capable of living the Christian life without help from anyone else. These are the ones who really think they're God's gifts to the church, right? They sit in the pew and the church is packed, but they... They turn sideways and cross their legs and sit wide in the pew. Yeah. And, and you can see them there. They, their arms are kind of folded this way and they're sitting in the pew and, and they're thinking to themselves, I wish you could get a bubble over their head, you know. Because they're thinking, I'm so sure these people are so glad I'm a part of their church. If I wasn't a part of this church, this church would be nothing. And, and they identify themselves at the at the church members meeting, when, when they start to speak and think that they should carry the day, they're not the pastor, they're not the elder, but, but because of who they are and what they do, you see, everyone should just sort of go along with them. They have that expectation of, of control and power and authority. They're proud. I don't really need these folks. I can do the Christian life all by myself. They're, they're long ranger Christians. And other Christians are a bother to them. They're, they're an impediment. They, they slow me down. You know, I, I got things to do, places to go, people to see. And so they don't understand the necessity of the rest of the body. See, see both of these attitudes really tear the body apart limb by limb. They threaten the integrity of the whole. We don't often think of it this way, but when we remember that what we're really talking about is the, is the body of Christ, and, and we let these attitudes develop in ourselves or develop in our churches and go unchecked, and people begin to leave the church, we dismember Jesus. We gouge out his eye, we saw off his foot, we knock out the Lord's teeth. I mean, to refuse our place in the body of Christ is to torture the body of Christ. And the interesting thing is this. Both the inferior and the independent, they, they oftentimes in our experience, don't they, they join together in the, in, in the same chorus of church membership isn't in the Bible. And you think you're talking to the same lump of people, but you know, they just have a common rally cry with very different motivations. One cries out because he wants to be up front. The other cries out because he wants to go it alone. And together they threaten the entire local church. A great many of those who argue against the idea of church membership, you notice in those conversations they either play no role in the church or they think they have no need of other Christians. And they just gather together in a coalition of the cantankerous. And, you know, they, they unravel what our triune God has intentionally put together. The church is what God puts together and pride is what tears her apart. That pride that, as Jonathan put it, 
refuses to submit itself to the other Christians in membership in the local church. And, and notice what Paul says to them. Back in verse 15 again, if the foot should not say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, notice Paul's retort. That would not make it any less a part of the body. He says the same thing there in verse 16. I think we're meant to get the same meaning in that opening phrase in verse 22. So the eye has said, you know, to the hand, I don't need you. Paul says, on the contrary. In other words, these are polite ways of Paul saying, stop saying that. That's wrong. Stop thinking that way. You can have an idea about the church that you, you really think is true and that you're holding on to, but it's wrong. So it doesn't make it true just because you think that way. And beloved, here's what's critical in a situation like that. When in our Christian lives on any issues, we, we have firmly fixed our thoughts on a particular position and we're beginning to act out those thoughts in, in concrete behaviors, here's what's critical. Is that we be the kind of people who are humble enough for leaders or other Christians to simply say to us, stop it. That's wrong. That's the most merciful sentence in the life of a person who's barreling towards sin and destruction. Stop. That's wrong. Now the proud man will get his back up. He will stiffen and clench his jaws and, and he'll, he'll ball up both fists and he'll be ready for the fight. How dare you tell me I'm wrong? But the humble man will at least pause and say, help me see what you see. Help me think through this with the Bible open. Tell me why you think I'm wrong. It's one of the most critical spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. It's the ability to stop and consider, am I wrong? And then to follow that with conformity to God's Word. Now, these two threats have one root, and that's pride. And we don't want to be proud because God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble to those who will listen and consider. Which brings us finally to the duties of church membership. And I want to give us four from this text. And then I want to conclude with showing that this isn't new to Thabiti. This is how the saints of history have thought about this. The first duty we see in the text is that we have a duty as members in the body of Christ placed there intentionally with the gifts that we have by our sovereign triune God. We have a duty to recognize and maintain the unity of the body of Christ. See that they're kind of inferred in verses 14 and 20? For the body does not consist of one member, but of many and you get the sense throughout this passage that Paul just, he's laying the emphasis on the, the unity of the body. As it is, there are many parts, yes, yet one body. And in truth, this, is, this has really been one of the themes running, out through, running through the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles there, keep your finger there or, or scroll over to chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. 
And he's writing this, of course, because he's heard a report from Chloe's household about the divisions and the factions and the things that are going on there in Carmen. So he begins right from the opening of the letter to address this theme of unity. And we see him addressing unity, for example, in chapter 3. We're in chapter 3 now. He begins to talk about the Christian ministry. Notice what he says there, beginning in verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as the people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And then he classes them together. Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, he conceives of the entire Christian ministry as a, as a joint partnership in planting and watering and praying for the harvest. He, he's not in competition with Apollos for church members. They are together in competition with Satan for souls. And, and not only does he, uh, the, this theme of unity show up in, in chapter 3 with the Christian ministry, but also in chapter 5 where we get this issue of church discipline. And we get the, the, the protection of the purity of the church. Notice what the apostle says in chapter 5. We get the situations there reported in verse 1. There's sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant, said pride again. Are, are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus. That, that's just another beautiful way of talking about the unity of the body. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, he has a view there toward the unity of the church and the purity of the church. And the purity of the church being protected by the unified action of the church in removing the unrepentant sinner. We see unity expressed again when you come down to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In that great passage where the apostle begins to address their practices at the Lord's Supper. And even says to them, this really isn't truly the, the supper that you eat because you, you eat it in such a way that demonstrates you're not unified as the body. So look at 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 27. The apostle says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment 
on himself. Notice what he says here, that the the bread and the cup are the body of our Lord, and that's something that we're meant to discern and we're meant to come to worthily. And and again, lest we think this is purely talking about the, the presence of the Lord at the supper, we jump down then to verse 33, and we get his punchline. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That part of what discerning the body at the supper entails is considering all the other members of the body and caring for them at the table and sharing with them in the, in the meal of the table and the remembrance of the Lord and, and participating with them, 1 Corinthians 10, in, in the presence of the Lord. That's to be done in such a way that we think not just about our relationship with Christ personally, but also our relationship with Christ and His people at the table. This, this whole letter in a very real sense, we could say, is a, a dissertation on church membership. It's a, it's a practical manual of, of, of church governance and, and, and membership. It, it is an explication of what it is to be Christ's body with others in a particular place. And our first duty as church members is to recognize the oneness or unity of the body of Christ and to protect it. And to maintain it. Second, we are to recognize and value the distinct persons and roles played by each member. We're to recognize and value each member, recognize and value each role that they play. That's, that's, I think, the point of the rhetorical questions in verses 17 and 19. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? So so the definition of a body is this one thing with differing parts. Yet one thing. So that uh, an eye alone isn't a body, it's an eye. I mean, imagine if the whole church were an eye. You just see this big giant orb rolling down the road, right? And it's coming at you. Well, the eye needs a socket. It needs connections with the brain. It needs to be encased in a head, which itself is supported and controlled by a neck, which, which itself gets its support from a spinal system, uh, which, which is connected via bones and other things to, to muscle and mass and tissue. The thing only works if each part does its part. Right? So as we said before, this is by God's conscious, intentional design. That's why, beloved, you have the spiritual gift that you have. God gave it to you. What an exquisite thing. What a precious thing. That's why you play the part, the role that you play in your church, and why it's vital that you play that role. The whole body stands or falls depending upon each part doing its part. And to reject that gift from God, the spiritual gift and the place that he has placed you in the body, it's really to say to God, you blew it. You you don't know what you're doing. You, You messed this whole church thing up because I wanted to do this and you gave me that. 
No, 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 no. I, I need to be that guy or this, this gal. I, I need to play a, a different role. Hey, you, just, you, just, you just messed up the assignment. That, that's, that's, that's in effect what we're saying to the God of the universe. And so we sense the foul hubris in it, don't we? The foul pride in such an attitude that sneaks up on us unawares. I mean, the one thing that Christ promised to build was his church. The only thing that God arranged with his hands after creation is the body of his, of his son. And someone comes along and says, I don't belong. I don't like what you've done. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. We should never say that about ourselves or others. The rhetorical questions of verses 17 and 19, they demand that we see every member as absolutely vital and every role as absolutely integral to the functioning and health of the church. And we need to keep every part in, don't we? You know, when you have children and they start to grow up and watch television, you you can never watch a a true action movie again, right? You can never get to the television again. You, you, you start to sort of grow up with Pixar and Disney, right? And one of my favorite movies is the movie Bolt. Anybody seen that movie? It's a great little movie. A little dog that has grown up as a kind of superhero dog, but he doesn't know that it's just a movie, that it's film. They've kept that from him, so he, he thinks he has superpowers and all that good stuff. Well, one day something happens and he gets out of the studio and gets out into the real world and he bumps into this, this sly alley cat and he thinks the alley cat's this e- working for this evil genius and, and uh, they're out and they're in a field. They jump off the back of a truck one day and they roll down this field and, and the dog, still thinking he's a superhero, he's kind of woozy and he's like, you know, what's happening to me? I'm losing my powers. And, and he looks at his palm and, and, and there's this red stuff in his hand. He, he looks at the cat, he says, what's this? She says, that's your blood. And he says, do I need it? <laughs> and, and the cat says, yes, try to keep it in your body, please. You know? and, and, and so it is in our engagement with people who don't yet see the beauty and the importance of church membership. We're looking at them, and, and they're looking at us, and, and they're, they're seeing blood or bone or muscle or tissue. They don't yet recognize And our attitude needs to be, let's try to keep you in the body. We need you. We need the part you play. Let let us try to understand together the significance. A third duty. We want to recognize and foster a, a mutual dependence or an interdependence in the body. So, so verses 22 to 24. Paul says there in his rebuttal, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, what we've just been saying. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Paul seems to have in mind here the dressing of the body. And the covering, for modesty's sake, of the, of the weaker parts of our bodies. And, and when we do that, think about it. You got dressed this morning. You brushed your teeth. You, you put on your clothes. And, and, and they, they, you, you did that in part 
Not just because you wanted to be presentable and to look good to others, but you did that in part. Part of what we're doing with dressing is we're protecting the, the modest, vulnerable parts, aren't we? I mean, this is the part of the Bible that guy with the sagging jeans needs to read, right? Cover it up. <laughs> Protect it, right? Give it honor. Give it a, give it a higher place, even though it's more vulnerable, even though it's more tender, even though it's weaker compared to your biceps or your triceps. Give it a more honorable place in your dressing routine. And that's what the church is to do with its so-called weaker members, its weaker parts, the folks who have been bruised and hurt, or the folks who have the less prominent gifts. They are tempted to think about themselves, that they are insignificant. But let the rest of us esteem them highly, lift them up, honor them. So when's the last time you picked up your children from children's ministry? And you stopped long enough to shake the volunteer's hand, look them in the eye, and say, I appreciate you. Thank you for partnering with me to disciple my children. Thank you for making sure they hear the gospel while I'm somewhere else hearing the gospel. Thank you for the way you have enabled me to grow spiritually in listening to the preached word from the pulpit, and at the same time, enable the spiritual growth of my child. You are a partner with me in the gospel, and I appreciate you. You want to freak him out this Sunday, go do that. (laughs) And the only reason why it freaks them out is because they almost never hear it. But that really should be the the main sound of our churches when it comes to our, our children's ministry, if we have them. But I fear too often the main announcement we hear is we need more volunteers. And we would not have a volunteer problem if we regarded the children of the church as the weaker parts needing more honor. And so this gets very practical. We, we esteem others better than ourselves. And we, we lift them up and we protect them. That's part of our duty as a, as a church, as the body of Christ. And so we ought to ask ourselves, is there any place in my Christian life where my membership in the church is expressed in an active mutual reliance on fellow weaker members? Or... Am I characteristically withdrawn and standoffish in relation to Christians in my church? This brings us to fourth and final. We want to cultivate empathy for all the members of our local church. See there in verses 25 and 26? The reason God has composed the body, verse 24, and given greater honor to the part that lacked it, The reason he's done that is in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That is a striking wording to me. Uh, We see there again the intentionality at the end of verse 24, and then we, we, we get the goal statement in verse 25, that God has composed the body this way so that there may be no division in the body. So we're back to that theme of unity, right? And when you read that, so that there may be no division in the body, and you hear the contrast, but what do you expect to follow? 
You're kind of reading this and you think, what's the opposite of division? Unity, right? But notice how Paul speaks more specifically than that. He doesn't leave our, our, our notion of unity kind of hanging in the air and vague. Notice what he says. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Or, or as the NIV 84 puts it, so that we may have equal concern for each other. That there's a reciprocity and a mutuality. There's a, that the church is this community of deep empathy, of feeling with others what they are feeling, and doing that in an impartial way. Doing that not just with the members of our small group or, or the folks who are, are friends of ours who went to college with, but here attempting to do that with every other member of the body. To feel with them. To enter into their experiences. And experiences wide, and widely ranging from, from mourning to rejoicing. From sorrow to gladness. And it's by God's design. That's why he has composed the body the way he has. An unfeeling church. Well, it's not really much of a church, is it? A church where people are cold and distant and indifferent to one another's circumstances. Isn't really being the body, is it? There are signals from the central nervous system that aren't reaching other parts of the body. There are aspects of pain and, and delight that aren't being shared with the rest of the body. And, and we all know this, don't we? We all had the experience of, of waking up at 2 in the morning and having to go to the restroom and you're, it's dark in there and you're making your way to the restroom and you kick your little toe on the edge of the bed. The whole body responds. <laughs> the whole body says, well, we got to protect that now. Wait, wait, what you doing? Wake up, wake up. You get the signal, don't you? And so it ought to be in the body of Christ. Miss Addie, who's 85 years old, just lost Mr. John, to whom she'd been married 55 years. She should not mourn alone. The whole body should mourn with her. She doesn't have email, and, and her eyes are failing. She can hardly call anyone, but, but Brother Johnny, who customarily goes by just to check on him, he was the first to get the news. He should make sure that not only the pastor knows, but the whole body knows that Mr. Johnny's gone home with be with the Lord. And Miss Addie, she needs us to mourn with her. Or, or Jim and Janet, newlyweds, college sweethearts. They, they are in the early stages of their career and they've had their first child. And the baby's come into the world and brought them so much joy. Well, our rejoicing with them isn't bottled and restricted to the baby shower. It's, it's shared, the rejoicing of changing diapers and, and wiping noses. That's meant to be shared. We're meant to rejoice with those who rejoice and to celebrate with them. Uh, the, the, the services that most oftentimes ought to be full with church members are the weddings of the church. As we rejoice with those who rejoice. The, the delivery room should be filled with a steady trickle of members coming by. Greeting the baby, welcoming the baby into the world, praying with the young couple. God has put us next to each other 
so that we may show equal concern for each other. How many of you have ever received that, that late night phone call? It's three or four in the morning. The phone rings. You're startled and instantly you are aware that this is odd because no one calls anyone at three or four in the morning. This must be important. And your heart races because such a call is never glad tidings. People wait to a respectable hour to give you good news. And you jump up alert and you get the phone call and you learn that a close family member, a brother, a sister, has been in an automobile accident and they're, they're at the hospital and the family is being gathered. And, and we know what's in that phrase, don't we? The family's being called together. And, and you hurriedly brush your teeth and you pluck the rollers out of your hair. You get your slippers on. You, you rush to the car. You drive to the hospital. You're praying all the way to the hospital. You get there. The family's assembled and they're, they're standing ankle deep in tears. And they're praying together. And you, you join them in both the tears and the prayers. And as a family, you, you, you express all of your dependence upon God for this family member who's in the room just on the other side of the wall fighting to live. Now, imagine it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. You get a phone call. It's not a family member, biologically. It's a member of your church. And they've called to tell you that Brother Sam is in the hospital. He's been in a car accident. Now, you know Sam from church, but he's not in your small group or your Sunday school class. Uh, but he's a nice-looking gentleman, nice gentleman. He's polite to everyone, and, and he's greeted you many times, and... And you listen to the report, and what do you do? It's in that moment that we come to understand whether or not we've understood verses 25 and 26 and the body metaphor and the family nature of church membership. Because what, is, what, what do most of us do, myself included? We promise I'll pray for Sam, don't we? And we hang up the phone. And maybe we mutter a brief prayer, or maybe we get out of our beds for a few minutes and pray, and then we're back to sleep, aren't we? This same concern, I think, is meant to take our response to Sam's hospitalization and to, to raise it something closer to our response to the brother or sister's hospitalization. For he is to us in Christ a brother and, or sister. He is to us related. In fact, he's so related, he's part of our body. Our little toe just got stomped. And there should be something in us that feels together with Sam. And that acts to show the same kind of concern that we would show to that person in our small group or in our Sunday school class or in our natural families. And that's not natural. That's supernatural. That has to be cultivated. That has to be awakened. That has to be sought after. And the good news is, God has placed you in the body for that result. He'll be working with you and me to express that kind of love. It's not only a duty of church membership, it's a delight. And none of this is new as we conclude. 
This idea that we are Christ's body and members of it and that we are duty-bound to be a part of it and that there are certain obligations and responsibilities and privileges, well, Christians have thought that throughout the centuries. And we could end with a number of such statements, but I just want to end with one. It comes from the Belgic Confession. Now, we're Baptists. We don't know what confessions are. It's a statement of faith. (laughs) Article 28 This is what is titled, Everyone is Bound to Join Himself to the True Church. That's just right in your face, isn't it? Everyone is bound to join himself to the true church. And here's what what they say, is what the saints who, who authored the Belgian Confession, here's what they say. He said, listen, we believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, and out of it there is no salvation, that no person whatsoever, state or condition he may be, ought to withdraw himself to live in a separate state from it. But that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and as mutual members of the same body serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given them. And that this may be the more effectually observed, it is the duty of all believers according to the word of God to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God hath established it. Even though, this is when I think of my brothers from China and Iran and places like it, even though the magistrates and edicts of princes be against it. Yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same, from the same of, do not join themselves to it, act contrary to the ordinance of God. I love those last couple of lines. Where, where it makes it clear that our part in the membership of the local church is actually so precious that against the rulings and the powers of princes and kings and magistrates, we should give our lives for it. They don't mean that flippantly. They mean that in due consideration of the value and the treasure of being identified with Christ in his body. Have we had this view of church membership? We wouldn't be having this conference or this debate. And, and we wouldn't have to, in, in missiological circles, fight against things like the insider movement and other things that, that cloud and shroud the beauty and the obligation of church membership. We would rather declare it loudly and humbly that we are Christ and he is ours. And that is all. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise for sending your Son for our salvation. And we do give you praise for 
sending your spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we give you praise and we give you thanks that you have not only saved us, but you have appointed us to particular positions in your body, the body of your Son. And that every position is noble. And every position is necessary. And every position builds the body and brings you glory. We have endeavored in this conference to encourage not just the pastors, but that as members we might have the sense that something extraordinary is true of us. Save us from that dull notion that being a member is simple or insignificant. That it's ordinary and not special. Grant that we should marvel that you have plucked us out of this world and set us in the body of your Son. And grant that we should prize that placement and delight in you. In Jesus' name.